Welcome to the Sacred Lab Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan, and you're listening to this podcast right now with the entire world. Everyone is currently tuned in to the greatest show on the planet. You're welcome. I'm conducting this podcast around central themes, which a lot of people do, but then a lot of people don't. You've kind of just got your uh, very broad, diverse, I'm going to interview anybody who's slightly popular kind of podcasts. And then you've got people that are much more specific and they're only interviewing one sort of industry or what have you. I'm going to kind of be somewhere in the middle. I'm, uh, I would like this podcast to focus on something that I'm calling Keystone Actions. At least for the first few episodes, I'll be talking to people who are involved in the hands-on physical sorts of uh, behaviours, actions, activities, industries, whatever that humans are engaged in, that if we shift our thinking and shift our actions, they're going to have the greatest effect. So a lot of what I'll be focusing on is, say, soil and growing food. Um, since there are so many uh, auxiliary behaviours associated with those, and there are so many issues coming out of these areas that are... Uh, uh, that are quickly becoming some of our largest human issues. So we'll see how we go. Today's episode is with Jerry Gillespie, the author of The Waste Between Our Ears. Uh, you can find Jerry's work, you can buy the book, and you can see when he's doing workshops and things like this through jerrygillespie.net, that's Jerry with a G, and Gillespie is G-E-L-L-I-S-P-I-E, and I'm just going to double check that I spelt that, I did not spell that correctly, Jerry with a G, Gillespie, G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E.net, very friendly guy. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, Jerry's been involved in the recycling industry for several decades now. He headed quite a few household waste programs, shifting shifting away from actually quite a lot of the standard practices. And one of the main things is he focused on education letting people know not only what what they would physically be doing with these new programs, but why, why they would be doing it. Um, I think his work is incredibly important. I think also with some of the implications of his work, I don't want to... I don't want to say it's hopeful, but um, it doesn't look nearly quite so terminal when you consider the implications of Jerry's work. If you would like to find out more about the Sacred Lab podcasts, you can find us on all your favorite podcasts listening platforms there's a facebook page that doesn't get updated a new instagram page that i probably won't use and yeah there's no there's no website kind of i'm 
I'm here to make something to to listen to. I'll be doing perhaps blogs and other things to read in the future, but I think for the time being, y'all are busy and often you can be listening to a podcast. You can send me an email about literally anything. If you just need someone to reach out to, if if you've got some cats you want to talk about, if you've got nudes, kind of anything, really, I'm up for it. You can reach me at ryan at sacredlab.com. Here's my interview with Jerry Gillespie. All right, perfect. Thanks for joining me, Jerry. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, right? Um, so I, I, I haven't quite finished The Waste Between Our Ears yet, which is your book. I believe it came out in 2019. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, just with the, the, the first question, did you receive any reaction from the waste industry about it when it was released? No, I, I, I suppose in the book, in many ways, I focus on those sorts of reactions that I got from the waste industry. I, I think I've learned to ignore it in the main. Um, their reactions, it, the, the waste industry is very, very big and very, very wealthy, and they detest any sort of change um, unless they're forced to by contract. So if you engage in sort of argy-bargy with them at any time, they've got enormous financial power to shut you down or push you out of the conversation altogether. So, no, generally I've, I've tried through colleagues in the Australian Organics Recycling Association to expand the conversation looking at how much value there is in material streams and particularly organics. But um, it's a fairly closed shop in terms, of, in terms of direction and it's understandable. People are quite frightened of change. Um, but this change, if we started to utilise the investment we put into what we call waste management for the benefit of the community, the, the potential benefits are quite phenomenal. So, no, the waste industry is not, not uh, really keen on the idea of change. Mm, okay. Um, a lot of what you write about in the book and a lot of your major work seems to be with the City to Soil program. Um, yep. Would you be willing to talk a bit about that? Yes. Um, originally, so I've been working. I've been working now on organics, <clears throat> getting organic materials out of waste streams and back into soils, in all sorts of areas, in domestic situations, community gardens, and also to at a much larger national scale in different parts of the world. But city to soil, I, I've always come back to the point that. The reason why programs are is it successful or not is is simply because people need to be engaged and excited about what they're doing. And the mistake I thought we always made in government was we just gave people a bin and a and a piece of paper and left it at that. We didn't. It's not. That's not what I call engagement. Engagement, where you're trying to deal with something that's really fundamental to people in terms of living in a house. You have to have some sort of removal process or a disposal process that takes material away because just simply because of the way of our, our society is set up. So my focus has always been on how do you engage people so that they start to get really excited about it. So that the idea with City to Soil was if you give people the right tools, the right motivation and the right information, um, they will generally do what you want them to do if you make it really clear what the benefits are to them. But we, we found in the first city to soil trial that we conducted here in Queanbeyan way back in 2003, we were only at that stage taking green waste, but we used the simple message to say to people, we need this stuff really clean because it's going into the soil to grow food for your children. And people get that. Mm. It's a very, very simple message. It, it They understand the particularly... Um, the issues of contamination in food supplies and they're getting their heads around now how dangerous agriculture is with the chemistry that it uses all the time. So that that simple message we found to be very, very effective. 
And the effectiveness in any recycling program is always measured by what level of contamination you have in the bins when you collect them. And, and the contamination is, is measured by how much glass or plastic or um, just all to, aluminium, all that sort of stuff that you end up in your bin that you didn't want. That contamination level in the first city of soil trial was less than half of 1%. Uh, that that has been achieved in some areas, but very, very few. Uh, we went on with the same message in a much bigger city to soil program um, that involved four council areas, and our contamination level there was around about 0.2 of 1%. So um, the message is important, but the excitement is even more important. Um, I was involved with the Australian Capital Territory Government in Canberra in 1992 and developing an education program around the rollout of recycling bins. Um, we had to evaluate, where, well, we had 1.4, I think, million dollars at the time, which was a huge amount of money for a trial. Um, and we had to evaluate all different size bins, um, um, separating different materials, keeping glass separate, mixing it in with everything else, using bags or using crates. Um, and the whole during the whole of that process, the focus that I had was saying to people, look, this is really unique. You're actually doing this for the rest of the country. If we can actually sort this thing out, it will eventually go out to the whole of Australia, which it did. That's what people have now as the yellow-lidded wheel bin. Essentially, all the base research for that was done in Canberra. Um, and it was very successful principally in a suburb of Canberra called Kayleen because we used exactly the same principle that I used later on in City to Soil, which was engaging the people, saying how unique they were in doing what they were doing, how exciting it was to have them involved. Uh, this was evidenced once by, I think once we got about eight months into the program, we sent around a survey to people. Now, this is way before, um, this is 1992, so it's way before people had the, uh, the ability to do um, Survey Monkey and things like that on, on the internet. So we were relying on a paper system and we got a 55% response, which is absolutely phenomenal for a paper system. Mm. Um, so people, we knew from that point that people were really engaged. So education, education, education is the important thing. And, and the thing about seed to soil is because it involves food and now um, it's come to involve the regenerative agriculture movement in a bigger way as well. Collecting organics from Australian material streams it's probably one of the most exciting things we could do for future, the future of agriculture because we've managed to demonstrate in the seed to soil process that we've now got a composting process that's far more effective than a standard aerobic process. And we're also now using turning food waste and things like um, dead feral animals and roadkill into foliar fertiliser. So all of those new directions add more excitement. But going back to city to soil, the whole principle around that was to keep people engaged just purely through the excitement of being involved in something that was a really substantial change for both them and their children and indeed their grandchildren. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. I did, um, uh, I did my PDC last year, my permaculture design course, and kind of one of the things mm -hmm. that they emphasise is that there's no, there is no waste. Everything that's on your property, everything that you're – that you're bringing in can be reused, um, uh, particularly organics and things like that. And it 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 struck me I hadn't really thought of it before. But in your book, you talk about that cardboard and paper are organic waste, um, yeah. and that they can be used for quite a lot of uh, things. Um, uh, so um, typically speaking, we've got our, our, our waste system, which is handled by industry and government and things like this. Why is it important that we handle this on a household level? Um, simply because community is made up of individual households and and it's important that people uh, not, not really take responsibility but can engage at an individual level. I mean, we all, we all 
dispose of things on a day-to-day basis and we're simply changing a really small element of, of that design of how you dispose of things. But in terms of in terms of the overall picture for organic material, the householder is the most important unit in that because the householder also, in most instances, although COVID's changed quite a bit of that, in most instances those people are also going into offices. The important thing for me has always been to have the same system operating in households that you have operating in offices, and this is never, ever really the case. There's always differences in those systems. I would maintain that is because we really simply don't take it seriously enough. We don't have that same permaculture focus. Um, And my point in the book, and I make it, I think, in the introduction, is about the fact that waste is a word. It's a concept. The only place that waste really exists is between our ears because because that, that we a Coca-Cola bottle might be, whether it's full or empty, the, the actual Coca-Cola bottle itself is not degraded in any way, yet it's gone from this being this beautiful, worthwhile thing because it's got this brown, silky material in it, and then as soon as you drain it, it somehow magically becomes waste. That's nonsense. Polyethylene terripethylate that they're made from is the same sort of thing you make bicycle helmets from. So it's incredibly tough, strong plastic material that should be used forever and ever, not used in a flippant one-off attempt at, a, at containing a, a bottle of soft drink. Um, I've I'm, I'm probably wandered off your original point. No, 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 but, no, um, no. Yeah, no, that's... It's, um, concept, conceptually, it's it's very, very important that... And, it's, and, and whilst, uh, as I said, the waste industry is always reluctant to change, the things... The thing that will change a waste industry ultimately is providing good research which indicates that other alternatives are viable, which I, I would argue permaculture has done for many, many years, um, as has biodynamic agriculture, uh, as has organic agriculture for that matter. But th- getting, getting the community to actually or getting the waste industry to believe that this change is necessary for them comes in the contract. So if you write them, if you write a contract that says every bit of organic material in Australia needs to go into this system and needs to be taken to this place and it needs to be processed in this way, that's exactly what they'll do because they'll get paid literally billions of dollars for doing that. So the need for change as much of anything resides in community and that's where it becomes exciting when the community begins to realise, like, Permaculture, I would argue, permaculture and composting organics and and biodynamic agriculture all are coalescing into something that's actually changing the social opinion about what direction we should go in terms of organics. Because clearly, if you look at the chemical agricultural model we're using at the moment, there was some research that I cited some years ago, and I'm not precisely where it came from, but it indicated that in the Wimmera area in Victoria, there's a 70% um, increase in the instance of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma among farmers, 70% higher than it was in the local urban community. And that's among farmers who were using um, things like glyphosate. Right. So those pennies, I think, regenerative agriculture, permaculture, um, biodynamics are all having the and community gardens and community composting are all having the combined effect of actually driving this thing in a totally different direction. I, I think we're on the road to success. It happens more and more that the requests that I get now for composting workshops up and down the east coast of Australia and in New Zealand and, and indeed online are doing lots of stuff in Nigeria at the moment, um, some little bits of stuff in India. I've done a lot of work in China. Cairo in Egypt and um, yeah that that the impetus is just enormous now I think I think it's unstoppable because people are chasing people are chasing answers to illness people are chasing answers to good health and something needs to change because our agricultural base is just wearing out Um, I was reading something this morning that said agricultural futures I received an email just before one from you um, and it was talking about how we were going to see a $2 billion increase in agricultural value over the next 30 years. 
Well, that's pretty bloody pointless because at the same time we're losing something like $800 million worth of agricultural land in the Murray-Darling Basin every year due to salinity, which is principally caused by the overuse of chemistry. Um, so we, as humanity, we need to make that fundamental change to appreciate, as permaculture says, that there is no waste, no such thing as waste. Um, but we need to get onto that road that actually takes us in the direction of connecting the urban communities' organic materials with the agricultural communities' need for organic materials. Uh, you mentioned in there um, the importance of community gardens. Um, I'm I'm wondering if you know of any uh, programs where local community gardens are um, kind of helping to deal with the overall community's um, uh, material stream. There are a couple around. There's 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 one or two in Cam. There are one or two in Canberra but I think they're mainly supported by the local members. Um, there's, a couple of good, there's a couple of good ones that operate in Melbourne. I think most community gardens offer members the ability to actually bring in their organic materials, um, but there's no, there's no mass collection. And, and, in fact, a lot of permaculture people or organics people generally would be against what I'm talking about um, because it, they see it as being... You know, you're just doing this sort of mass collection as you're doing the mass collection of every other thing, but the focus is entirely different. Um, whilst the while the essence of community gardening is really, really fundamental to community, it's also to, important to remember that um, the broader agricultural base that we have in Australia, we've got something like 455 million hectares under agriculture. And according to the New South Wales Department of Primary Industry, 70% of that land is, on average, 70% of that land has got less than 1% organic material. Organic material is the thing that actually allows you to um, infiltrate water into soils. Um, it allows you better cropping systems. It allows you better microbial activity. But our farming arm at the same time is using things like glyphosate, which are as a biocide. I mean, it, it doesn't do... You, you might think that you're only killing off the nasty plants that are near the surface that you want to get rid of, but you're actually killing off half of the microbial interactions below the ground. Um, fungi are very, very close to plants in their makeup, and actually allowing those things to be exposed to things like glyphosate is just insanity because the next thing you're trying to do after, after your glyphosate kills off all the other crops and you get that off, the, off, your, off your farm, then the next thing you've got to do is apply fertiliser and seed to grow your, your next crop, but you've killed off the very thing that delivers the fertiliser to the plant, which is a microbial activity. So there's a sort of fundamental need for change in, in that area. But I think, going back to what you said, the community garden aspect actually gives people the inkling and the indication that that's the direction we need to go in. And, and as I said, there are some phenomenal changes happening in broader agriculture, there was a lovely story on Landline last Sunday that was talking about um, wheat farmers in in northwestern New South Wales, I think. A big property, so like 10,000 hectare property, but biodynamic. Uh, that to me is very, very exciting. And it's really, and really strange to me when you look at that from a biodynamic perspective that they're actually doing that as a monoculture as well, which, uh, as far as I can see, it was a monoculture, which which is um, unusual. Um, I, I think it's unusual anyway. I tend to use multiple cropping systems if I was at that scale, you know. So you've got um, one, one farmer that, that I deal with in Minton in Saskatchewan. He's got 10,000 hectares under agriculture, and he grows about five different types of grain together, so he doesn't, the grain, the different plant types support each other, so he doesn't have to use fertiliser. Um, he's got all that microbial activity happening in his soils, which is generated principally by compost. And then when he harvests, instead of instead of um, using a, a product like glyphosate as a desiccant to kill off your crop so that you've got a dry crop to, to collect, he actually uses um, five, maybe four or five grains together, harvests it all at once and then puts it through a very expensive seed mill, um, seed sorter. So instead of investing in hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in poisons and a, and a backward system, he's invested a few million dollars in a seed sort operation, which not only gives him a much better price, he's got high nutrient density and all the, all the 
potential in all the grains that he's taken off. He has no poisons in his system. He can sell organically, so he fits into a niche market as well. So from his perspective, it's a win-win-win. But he did say to me, a lot of the stuff going into this effort has taken him down some mysterious routes and, and long some of those paths have been some mistakes, and he said, "When I when I do make a mistake, it's usually bloody horrific. <laughs> They're very expensive, I think he meant. Right? Okay. If he makes some. It makes a million dollar mistake. It's a multi multi million dollar mistake. But yeah, he's doing very very well. So there are lots of people like that now. There's there's Ian and Diane Hegarty in Western Australia who are doing very very similar things, and there's lots of farmers in New Zealand, the quorum sensing people, and people like that who are doing very very well with no fertilizers and no poisons." That's interesting. I'm sorry, that was probably wandering off the subject. No, no, not at all. That was that, that was great. Um, yeah, I'd I'd I'd, I'd wondered how uh, farmers who have a diversity of crops of of grains of whatever it is, how they actually would go about um, c- collecting their crop and then sorting it. But it seems that there are great machines that do it, which is good to hear yes and then then look there are some very very clever things that people can do too um we had a neighbor complaining recently about um ivy climbing up the side fence and um i mean when you think about it the 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 use of glyphosate in an urban situation is really loopy idea you know it 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 makes uh, it makes no sense in terms of food production so yeah it changes imperative i'm sorry i lost my train of thought a bit then too the um, drugs have that effect. Yeah. <laughs> I should say, sorry, it's a podcast. It's a, I'm having treatment for cancer. That's why I'm taking drugs. I'm not. Uh. Yeah. Um, you were talking about ivy, a uh, novel treatment oh, sorry, for ivy yeah. on the fence line. Yes. Well, uh, well, well one, some, a bit of work we did a long time ago, oh, five years, six years ago now in Tamora, um, they have a, a weed crop called fleabane. You know, more commonly called Canadian fleabane. Fleabane was um, in the 1800s. People would cut fleabane because it has a fairly noxious odour and use it to pack their sleeping materials, so their mattresses and their pillows, because as the name indicates, it <coughs> keeps fleas away. Right. Um, but fleabane is a, is a crop that comes after a fairly heavy wet season. So if you've got really good rains, it takes advantage of it and comes up in, re- and particularly in, in really poor soils. and as I said earlier, Australia's got a myriad poor soils, so we're really well endowed with poor soils. So out around Tamora, this stuff there is is like concrete. You know, it's absolutely shit. It's it's really hard. Anyway, um, fleabane will take advantage of that, and and a really good season for fleabane, you'll you'll end up with plants that are no more than about two centimeters apart. But what that'll do if you're trying to run sheep in a paddock like that. Is it, it's it's at exactly the right height to get into sheep's eyes as they bend down to feed and that sort of thing. Um, so it causes a lot of sheep blindness. It also because the plants are so close together, it will cause a lot of mismothering. So lambs get lost and die of starvation because they can't find their mother. So what we did was um, using the compost process we developed for city to soil, which is um, a first stage aerobic, second stage fermentative. So facultative this is the second stage, correct term. We used the inoculant that we used in the seed to soil compost process. We harvested, <coughs> pardon me, we harvested um, fleabane when it was, we cut it when it was really green. And this will drive almost any farmer nuts when you say it to them. We baled it once we inoculated it straight away and baled it while it was green. A farmer straight away will get into a fit of panic about that because they'll think, oh, shit, this got, the whole thing's going to ignite because... Normally, if you baled hay when it was green, it gets really, really high temperature. The moisture is driven out by the temperature and it ignites. But once you put this fleabane into a round bale under really extreme pressure, you end up in a situation where um, its moisture level is very, very high. So it cannot ignite no matter what temperature it gets to. There's too much water for it. It's too wet to, to burn. And so what we effectively did was take a weed in a circumstance where it was causing a hell of a lot of cost for the farmer, turn it into a really valuable product, a, a compost on their own land, which is probably because of the quality of the compost would be worth at least $100 a tonne. But most importantly of all, it gives the farmer their paddock back. It gives the farmer an opportunity to go back to tours and start with 
a composting process or, or an, a, the ability to rejuvenate that soil, hopefully using something that's biologically active rather than more chemistry. But, yeah, you've got all those commercial advantages. So if you look at the disadvantage of um, weeds, it's a cost, cost, cost situation, whereas if you look at a combination of composting and you know, use even even in some circumstances if that material was cut green enough and it was the right sort of plant, it might even be suitable as a fodder, so as a feed to animals. It's, it's interesting that the, the frustration for me with weeds, when, when I first came to, down to live in this area in 1975, the first job I had was driving a tractor around and around in circles cutting thistles. Uh, Scotch thistles but at that time in this local area were very, very close. Um, but typically Scotch thistles got to have a protein level well above 20%. 24%, 26%. Not, what you're chasing all the time in agriculture is protein. That's what you're chasing your tail for to try to produce more protein from your land in a very broad sense. But so weeds like um, weeds like Scotch thistle might have 26% protein, but the bloody grass you're feeding your stock has only got 11%. You know, <laughs> have a think about it. You know, um, what if you turned that product into something your cattle would eat? I mean, I can remember years ago reading reading a, um, um, an article about a farmer who was actually teaching his cattle how to eat thistles. They have to get down to the bottom of the plant and wrap their tongue around it and pull it out of the ground so they can attack it from sort of upside down. But, I mean, the plant the plant itself is nutritionally much, much better than most of the other things we're trying to ram down the throat of the animals anyway. But weeds, weeds as and I always get the pronunciation incorrect, Henry Pfeiffer, who was a student of... Um, Rudolf Steinish used to say, weeds are trying to tell you something about your soil. Uh, permaculture uses that, as do biodynamics. Um, if you've got a lot of yellow plants, you've probably got a calcium uh, magnesium imbalance in your soil. So you need to look, you need to look at what the, what the soil is actually trying to say to you. I mean, there are implications about that whole conversation about if plants are, if plants are actually producing things of different colour and different heights that have different... Um, scientific so different nutrient bases then what is it they're trying to tell you you know i mean um is is the soil trying to get back to a point where it has a a nutrient balance that it's trying to achieve on all occasions which then leads you in down the magic path of people like william albrecht and you know so you can go nuts reading all that stuff as well but um weeds are trying to tell us really simple things we just need to go take our minds back to something really simple to look at what they're doing to understand what we need to do yeah I was wondering about weeds, because um, in the collection of green waste and then composting of it, was there an issue with that compost kind of just being a good fertilised base for the weeds to grow in farms and things like that? Um, in some instances, if you don't do something about the weeds in the paddock, then it could be. But if you put weed seed through any composting process, we that Canadian flea bone trial we did, we had zero seed viable seed production at the end of it, so 100% seed kill. Um, and, the, and also, too, when you're thinking about weeds, half the trick with weeds is cutting them at the right time as well. So cutting them just before they go to seed. Um, and look, there, there is, there, there's just so many different techniques that people use that are clever in regard to weeds. To take the sort of simple solution of using a poison is, I think, yeah, a bit loopy when you've got so many viable alternatives. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so is it uh, in the composting process? Is it the heating of it that's killing off the seeds? Is this? It no? is mainly the heating, but 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 the interesting. If you don't mind, I'll just talk about the composting process we designed for seed to soil, which which is not different, not in so much as what you would have learned in permaculture or biodynamics. Um. The composting process, when, when we did the first trial in 2003 for seed to soil, we then were very lucky um, in receiving $2 million from the New South Wales Environment Trust to do a bigger trial with Queanbeyan, where I am, um, Pellerang, which is an adjoining council, Goulburn to our north, and then Condoblin, which was, um, Condoblin's about four and, a, four and a half to five hours away from us. So we quickly realised that running up and down the highway with composting equipment, we used we would have used our our entire budget in no time at all just transporting machinery so we had to come up with a different composting process and chasing around 
I found and knew already about anyway, as most people in permaculture would, um, Elf, um, Sir Albert Howard's um, composting process from indoor in India, which was basically biodynamics. Um, he was much a follower of Steiner as anyone else. But the other interesting one we came across was a woman called May Bruce who who designed a system called quick return composting. It, it's really unusual because it's, it's based on a herbal inoculant. It's still available called, through a company called Riverdean in the UK. Um, <clears throat> but the un- unusual thing about May Bruce's process is it was a, a box of sleepers with a covered compost, so completely covered compost. Um, her objective was to actually get the inoculant to do most of the work, which it did very, very successfully. She can make a really, really high-quality product in six weeks. So what we tried to do with the CSR process then was to use Sir Albert Howard's process, which was um, basically the same as our, same as what we came up with, except um, we used a cover. He... he um, his process was still fermentative at second stage, um, but not as actively fermentative as ours. So what we came what we came up with was we quickly realised when we put a cover on a compost heap that if you have a standard upturned V and it's a hundred metres long, as soon as the temperature gets up to a fifty five degrees Celsius or a bit higher, the process will blow its moisture off, and that moisture hits the plastic and runs off. So what we do is we put a little dip in the top. So just a little sort of bum dip in the top of the compost heap. So when the moisture hit the hit that dip, most of it drip or a lot of the water dripped straight back into the pile. So what we had was a self-watering system. Um, it, it required no turning and it had no odour. And we've got lots of research that says that's quite clear now that we'd have, we... Anyway, the, the reason, just the way the process functions, its first stage is fully aerobic as is all composting processes, nature uses aerobic processes to break down anything initially. Under a cover, though, when you've restricted but not cut off the oxygen supply, not cut off the air supply, it, it will get the, the aerobes, if you like, will get to the point where they've consumed everything they possibly can. Once that's finished, the pH will drop rapidly to around about 4.5 and the entire pile switches over to become facultative. The facultative anaerobes are interesting because they'll, they're opportunists that will run on, on, on air if they need to or lack of air if they need to. They'll they literally switch from side to side. Um, There's a more complex way of, of explaining that, but you're probably better off to look it up. But the, um, the interesting thing that, that happened with us, because we're aiming in the composting process all the time to use as broad a biological base as anything, there was a wonderful teacher at Armidale University many years ago who used to say that if your biological base is broad enough, nature will cope with absolutely anything that's made. It will actually turn it back into a different product if you give it the opportunity. And so that's precisely what we did with the facultative stage of this composting. It meant that um, the outputs of one biological process became the inputs to another. So that's why we have no odour. We have no potential for methane production or very, very minimal production for methane production. No nitrous oxide, none, none of the other normal processes, none of the normally odorous or whatever processes you might have with composting occur with this process. And it was in serendipity, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't what we set out to do. What we set out to do was to have something cheap and, and as non-mechanical as possible. But um, there are lots of people around the world using that process now um, simply because it's in our situation, collecting organic material from domestic premises, most of the stuff that goes into a 240-litre bin, wheel bin is no longer than your arm and no thicker than your thumb. So most of it doesn't really require shredding. Most of it's leaves and grass and stuff. So if we, we found if we put that into a pile and covered it, you get the moisture level really right and inoculate it, push it into a pile and then cover it. In most instances, you shouldn't have to take that cover off at all. Um, if you, let, if you were doing it on a farm, in fact, you'd never have to touch it again. So a no-turn composting system that also doesn't require shredding, that also doesn't produce odour, 
Um, it doesn't produce any leachate if you're managing your water the right way, and it produces a really highly humus-laden compost for a fraction of the cost of a standard composting process. So it's it was a win-win situation. That was really appealed to us for for the serious oil system. Yeah. So so say you've laid you've laid all the material out, you've shredded it, you've done those parts to it. At what point would you inoculate it? Um, what we'd normally do is we'd get the stuff out of the bins at, say, Armadale Council, which was one of the largest one we had. Um, if you have the pile on the ground around about 30 centimetres deep, a little bit more, so you can see if there's anything in there that shouldn't be in there. Um, in Armadale, they've got this tiny little Kubota-type backhoe and the staff have become very, very classy at being able to pick a single bag up with this huge tooth thing. Um, so they pick out any contamination that's arrived, which is fairly mineral, minimal anyway, um, and it's at that point that they actually get the moisture set. So they get it. You need about 40% moisture, which 40% moisture is when you can pick up a handful of something and squeeze it and a few drops of water will come out. Um, so once they get to 40% moisture, they, they and they're using water that's not from a town water supply. So you don't want chlorine in there because it kills off biology. So it can be water from a dam or a creek or a rainwater tank. Um, and then you inoculate, you inoculate that um, pile while you've got it really wet like that and then you push it into the shape you want it and, and then put the cover on. <clears throat> and so what they were doing in what they were doing in Armadale is they'd allow that first process to go on for six weeks and when that had reduced, that re remember that first stage is a lot of it's aerobic, so that reduces the bulk fairly substantially. They'd take that lot and put it with one of that, some of their other stuff had gone through that first phase as well. And so it's space-saving as well from their perspective. They had a point where they did the first six weeks processing and another big area of land where they did the re remaining processing. They'd, they'd actually um, move it over there, then start a new pile where they had the last, the, the previous lot of six weeks first up. Um, and as they moved it, they'd pick out any material that was contaminated anyway, again, that they'd missed in the first phase. But then they'd let that run to the end of the six weeks and then they put it through a trommel and take out any material, usually about sort of 30 to 40% of material that was the right size and the right level of humus, et cetera. And then when that stuff came out the end of the other trommel, that's when they'd shred because it was soft. It was already partially broken down. And then they'd mix that lot back in with, with what they were doing with the first stage, which meant that they were re-inoculating with the compost process itself. Um, yeah, so it's... It sounds complicated, but once you get into a routine, we found um, two staff there could handle that whole process on a continuing basis, so it's not that difficult. Right, and what's uh, what volume of material would those two people be dealing with? Um, Armadale, when it first started, Armadale had a 5,000 tonne a year licence and then they expanded the licence to 50,000 tonne a year. Um, I would think probably... Oh, They'd be taking in, it's a population when the university's in full flight. It's a population, I think, of around 30,000. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't be sure on that, but it's about 3,000 people at the uni, I think. But they'd be getting um, a couple of tonne a day, so probably six to eight tonne a week. Um, but what, one clever thing they did too was they said to the public from the outset that they weren't using it for the purposes of profit and then they didn't want to get into an argument about selling the stuff um, in commercially competitive circumstances. So they actually worked out how much it cost them to produce the product and they sold it for cost recovery. And that was part of the, the agreement with the community was if you give us this stuff clean and you do it regularly, we'll make it available for you to use in your gardens. It, I think they were selling it at first grade quality product now is about 45 or $50 a cubic metre. And the second grade product, which is the one they make after shredding, is about $35 a cubic metre. Um, so people get very, very good compost, hardly any expense at all and fairly large quantities. It's interesting that um, in the organics area, organic farming area and permaculture around the world generally is that a woman, a, woman, a very good friend by the name of Christine Jones, um, 
and she actually lives in Armidale. And and one of the things that really sort of fired everybody up about the process is she wrote to me once and and told me she thought it was the best compost she'd ever seen. So that's a pretty good recommendation from a soil scientist who really knows this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Actually, it was through watching a bunch of Christine Jones lectures online that I found out about you and your work. All right. Um, so just just back to you mentioned a few names, but you mentioned May Bruce and her um, uh, fast processing method. Quick return. Yeah, yeah, yeah quick return. Um, can you just tell tell us a bit about May Bruce and kind of when she first, was around? First of all, yeah. First, uh, so she was around. She got into a bun fight with. Um, Steiner's followers, <coughs> um, and I, th- I think that occurred somewhere in the late 1920s. Um, I've been to the Gothian AM in, in Dornach in Switzerland, which is where Steiner's um, knowledge base, I suppose, is held. And um, it is really funny to watch how people almost turn something that's – well, and I think some, in some ways the same thing happens to permaculture, except Holgram sort of keeps it a lot more grounded. But people can people can turn something into a religion, and as soon as it gets to that sort of religious phase, woo, they all they all start fighting each other to take control of it. Anyway, um, Steiner Steiner gave them the basis, I believe, of this composting process. And as I said, um, Sir Albert Howard was using that that basic biodynamic composting process. Um, by the way, if you've got there's a copy of a book by Sir Albert Howard, there's a book called An Agricultural Testament. And the composting process that that I use, designed, stole, whatever, um, that basically is on pages 48 and 49 of Sir Albert Howard's stuff. Um, that, that, the difference between that and what May Bruce was up to, um, May was, a, was very interested um, it's interesting to note that that the um, Steiner issues or the Steiner agricultural lectures happened at a time um, between the two world wars. Uh, the First World War provided um, opportunity to make, of course, lots and lots of explosives. And then when the war stopped, all these people who were making explosives suddenly found they didn't have much market for their stuff. And then fertilizer suddenly came up because of the work a long time ago of Justus von Liebig um, uh, in regard to in regard to nitrogen, um, yeah, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium (NPK), and so people started following that religiously. But, but Steiner, in some ways, was a bit of a um, the, his processes were a bit of a rejection of that and trying to get people to do things on a far more organic base. Um, May Bruce was a follower of his originally. And she got into a bit of a bun fight with people because she argued, as I would, as would a lot of people in, in biodynamics. Steiner didn't say this is the end of it. Steiner said this is the beginning and what we need you to do is to stand on each other's shoulders to see what actually you can learn and see what else, other processes you can develop. Um, what he was talking about was some very, very basic principles that people could follow. Um, anyway, May Bruce had claimed that in a dream one time, and she talks about it in her book. <clears throat> Actually, I should give you the details of that. Her entire, she's got a little book called um, about the quick return compost method, and it's on a website called Journey to Forever. So if you go to Journey to Forever and ask for quick return compost, it'll show you her whole book and it's downloadable for free. Um, so what May found herself in a circumstance where she she had this dream about the essence of everything is in the flower. And so <clears throat> she designed a system that was based around dried flowers. And they are things like oh, nettles and comfrey and all the things that you'd normally use now in permaculture to make a, a speed of compost. Um, you find the recipe anyway in her book. Um, and she was just drying them so that she had them all year round. You can use them fresh. I've known of an Ameri- a very large-scale American composter who uses them as fresh products because they can get them at the right time, I think. 
But May's idea was to actually use them as a, as a dry product. During the Second World War, um, she was she was showing people right throughout the UK how to make this compost, a high-quality compost, so they could grow vegetables when they were under siege from the Germans. And she was very, very successful in that. But it's it's basically her process is you make a compost heap in exactly the same way as you would with permacultural biodynamics. You compact it down a little bit and then you drill a, drill a series of about five holes in, in different parts of the compost pile. Then the previous night you would have taken about a half a teaspoon or a teaspoon of the dried powder material, put it into a Coca-Cola bottle and, and um, with clean water and give it a shake and let it stand overnight. And then in the morning in these five holes you've created, you just pour it into, that fi- into those five holes, then put your cover on, which restricts the air. And I guarantee you in six weeks without turning, without putting any more additional effort in, you'll have the most beautiful, beautiful humus-laden compost. The the only re, the only thing that's that stymied us a bit with that process <clears throat> on a broader scale is that um, it requires a very enclosed system, and it doesn't. It's it's difficult to scale up. Although there was another book produced some years later by and and this American um, composter I mentioned before, they were actually doing it to scale and getting quite good results. But I've not noted, in, I'm just in trials here at home, um, trying to trying to do it with an, a fully enclosed system or open one cubic metre piles, you don't get as good a result as you do with a small closed system. And that brings up also to the subject about, of about how much compost we should be using. If you look at the Australian Organics Recycling Association, most of, their, most of its members produce thousands of tonnes of compost, so they've got to find a market for thousands of tonnes of product. Um, and they usually sell the product at fairly competitive prices, whereas if this humus product, I think for the results that you get, you could probably sell it easily. In fact, there was one company here at Bungendore called, um, uh, sorry, forgotten. Um, what was their name? Anyway. That, that they were actually producing a product that was selling for $140 a cubic metre. Um, the general compost they produce by Aora members is about $50 a cubic metre, but they their issues are entirely different. If you're living in Melbourne or you're living in Sydney or any large metropolitan area and you're making compost in that area, you, your land is very, very valuable, and so you've got a cost per square metre just to have the land sitting there. Yeah. And so their whole objective is to actually get it on, get it off as quickly as possible. So they they truly look at look at organic material as a waste product that needs reduction. There's the whole waste management theory is in direct opposition to what I'm talking about. We're trying to, through permaculture or biodynamics or whatever, what we're doing with cities, or we're trying to use the product to produce the best possible results we can get, and we need as much product as we possibly can. Interestingly, when I did an evaluation of how much product our process produces in a comparison with a purely anaerobic phase just on the local showground down here in Queanbeyan, we found at the end of the process we had 20 to 25% more product from the from my process than you have from a standard aerobic process, and that to me is the whole objective. It's about more and it's not about less. This is not a waste management technique. This is about taking a product and trying to realise its true potential in soil, which means that when you apply it to soil, you do what um, a biodynamic farmer or a permaculture person would do. You only need a handful of it per square metre because you're talking about biological activity. You're not talking about bulk. You're not talk- if, Yes, if you want to retain your moisture, then use a mulch or something on top of it or use a straw on top of it. But the objective is not uh, just purely moisture retention. The objective in this is lifting the microbial activity in the soil. That's great. That's very that's very interesting. Um, yeah, I think with um, uh, Ian and Diane Haggerty, they've they've kind of got like a twofold system. They're they're washing their seeds before they sow them in worm tea. And then they're they're spraying compost throughout the field, kind of after that. Yes, they actually use they actually use a combination of their own compost extract, which you can make 
Christine Jones and I in a tour in America in 2019, we're trying to show people how to make it in bulk so you can make a fairly bulk product. So, yes, you do the you do the seed inoculating and then you use it as a liquid in the furrow and then use it as a foliar after tillering, after you've got to the fall leaf stage in the plants. Um, and they've been very, very successful. Um, there are lots of variations on that too. Like they were originally using all nutrisoil, which unfortunately for them was on the other side of the country to where it's made in um, Victoria. Yeah. And so huge transport costs involved. So they've been moving around, and that, but, I mean, good luck to them. They do some nutrisoil, do some wonderful things in the community in terms of informing people of what's happening and, and doing what you're doing, podcasts, just trying to keep people much more informed about what's happening in different areas. Um, but, yeah, um, the what the Haggertys are up to is a wonderful, brilliant, shining light in front of what all the stuff that other people are up to at the moment. But, yeah, good luck to them. Do They're doing very, very well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, so we're kind of quickly running out of time here, so I'll just ask a couple more, right. couple more questions. Um, what are your thoughts on um, using some of the material stream for biochar production? Um, <clears throat> I think it's a good idea. There was a lovely piece of research, and I always forget the woman's name, who she worked for the CSIRO in Adelaide and she was looking at estuarine systems. So the, the lakes and rivers just before in your yeah, just before rivers reach the sea. And she found that if you if you took the organic material that's in the that just in the mud from an estuarine system, forty percent of the organic material in that system is charcoal. Nature does not have anything that's 40% of its total mass and not use it. I mean, it's just, it's an insane thing that nature would. But what we've done as humanity is we've come along and in most areas where we've got, where we've got humanity involved in doing things, we've prevented people from having fires. So no fires, no charcoal in the system. So I would say there's something sadly, this, we're missing something from our overall system if we don't have charcoal in it. Um, I've, I've used it a fair bit and I've got my own retort up the backyard that I've been piddling with. I was one of the founding members of the International Biochar Initiative in uh, up near up near Newcastle at a thing some year, 2007. Yeah. But, um, no, I think it's brilliant. But the thing to, for people to remember about biochar is, as Christine Jones says, if you put it into the soil as it is, it's dead. And so if you put it into the soil as it is, um, it's going to draw down on a lot of other things before it becomes biologically active. So whatever you do, inoculate it with something, um, uh, even if it's just a simple, simple compost tea or a weed tea made from um, weeds or, or a tea made from something like, um, well, just virtually any of the plants in your garden. But inoculate it with something so it's got biological activity in it as it goes into the soil. But I think um, biochar's got a hell of a lot to teach us about natural cycles and systems. Nature's been using it for many, many years and very, very effectively. Um, I think it will be one of the things that actually saves our agricultural bacon if we can actually get our head around the idea. Um, But there's some very, very good research. I'd recommend anybody join the International Biochar Initiative. I think for an individual it's only about $50 or $80 a year and you get all the latest research. and it's not a threat. The, the Australian um, Compost, the Australian Organics Association, sees it as a threat. That's just plainly stupid. I mean, it's um, you're not going to you're not going to turn ham old ham sandwiches into biochar. Well, if you do, you're wasting a lot of time and money because you've got to drive out a lot of moisture. But certainly, we've had a lot of wood products that that are actually very very functional as biochar. But we, myself and another gentleman down in um, Tasmania years ago had come up with a system <clears throat> for cyclone hit areas where if you could go there with a small team and a small retort and turn some of the damaged unpainted timbers and stuff and trees and branches into biochar very, very quickly, you could start filtering water straight away so people could get clean water and then you could use that filter product to actually help people start growing vegetables straight away much faster. So <clears throat> it depends yeah, it depends. You know, I mean, you've got to look at you've got to look at the advantageous areas of everything. Biochar has many, many advantages, and, and I think people who are frightened that everything's going to be turned into biochar—it's just an errant nonsense. I mean, it just makes no sense to do that. 
Yeah. So, and that's not what the IBI are trying to do anyway. Right. So you've got a retort at your place. Is it one that, like, because uh, I know that sometimes the systems get rather complex, and they've they've got like a gasifier that's like catching the liquid wood gas as it's coming off. Yeah, yeah, is yours but, is yours like that? Yeah. <clears throat> Mine's at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, mine is a um, it's a three eighth inch steel tube that's about half a meter long. And, and probably about 40 centimetres across at the middle. And I use it on a – years ago there was a very popular thing where people would take a, 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 a harrow disc from a tractor, so a, a disc that's about 50 centimetres across, um, weld three legs on it and, and let the, oil, the fat drip out the bottom when you're cooking chops and things and you've got the perfect barbecue. But what I do is I, as I, that's the base of my retort. The next stage is this big piece of pipe that sits on that. Then I put three little nails under it, so it's got a tiny little air gap between the steel plate at the bottom and the side of the retort. And at the top, I've got a chimney that's about 1.5 metres long and a, and a gap that fits <clears throat> the top of a cake tin, fits over the top of that big piece of pipe, and then it's got a little area about that high that's open, openly vented. So what you're trying to do, that openly vented into the flue, what you're trying to do is allow air into the bottom a sufficient amount to supply oxygen to keep the burn going, but not a great deal of oxygen. And then above that, <clears throat> as the pipe heats up on the outside, there's a tendency to draw in more and more air at the top and take it up the flue. And you very quickly end up probably in as little as 15 to 20 seconds after you light it, sometimes a little bit more, you end up with a rocket. So it's roaring. It's literally um, like old wood chip toilet heaters, um, bath heaters that people used to have. Um, the, the the idea is it's a top lit downdraft gasifier. So you to you pack your wood in really tight, and I mean really tight. Like I used to chop it up with a with a small axe and then hammer it in, so you had no airspace much in it at all. And then light a tiny little fire with some with some wood sticks and stuff on top. And then because your similar proposition to lighting a match, if you if you light a match and hold it up into the atmosphere, then while well, you hold it on its side, it can get access to a lot of oxygen and the flame gets bigger and bigger and burns quickly. Whereas if you turn it up really straight, it can't get as much access to oxygen around the stick, so it reduces the flame. So what we do is reducing the flame in that retort and it will burn from the top to the bottom in about... <clears throat> around 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So that gives me enough charcoal. In fact, I only did it about 10 times. So I've got charcoal coming out of my ears from that and other experiments that people have done in local areas, you know, from a lot of different products. So you don't need a lot. Um, but that burn system is also very easy to regulate. Once you've got a heavy bit of steel and you want to see how well it's heating up, I just simply use a candle on the outside. The candle indicates that melt point if it's got to a melt point of about 500 degrees Celsius or 400, it will the the wax almost ignites straight away. It gets it just melts so rapidly, and also too those hand temperature tester things they're using on people's foreheads in and out of airports these days they do exactly the same thing. They're not expensive, um, so it's there. There are lots of criteria in terms of temperature for producing quality charcoals. But I generally just mainly use Australian native hardwood um, and then I put it through. One of the things I've been using as a crusher is if it's been processed really well, um, I'm just mixing it down with, well, I just take the product and crush it down roughly if I can and then they put it in through one of those things that people use to make ice cubes into slush for um, frozen drinks. Yeah. Works really well. And I'm sure an old washing machine with a hand wringer would do exactly the same thing as well. But you need it as small as you can possibly get. Need it as a really fine powder if you can. But no, I think um, I like biochar. I, um, I like the idea of charcoal use. It just makes it makes sense because nature uses it commonly. Hmm. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for that for that description. Um, all right. Well, we're just uh, just about out of time here so do you have anything that you'd like to promote any workshops coming up 
anything like that? Um, no, I'd lo- I can I just I just I've got one here. Like people to buy a copy of the book. Yep, the waist between our ears. So that, yep. Yeah, that's available from Paper Chain um, Bookstore or uh, Paper Chain Books in in Marnica in Canberra. Um, that's the only place that's available in Australia, apart from myself. Um, I'm not sure what their price is at the moment. It's probably around about thirty dollars, but you can get it from America. But the the um, mailing costs um, will push the price up a bit. I'm not sure how much. By the way, Acres Acres Magazine have got it on there. That's it's it was published by Acres Magazine. Yep. They um and they've been wonderful. I, I can't say enough good things about Acres Magazine. They've they've been so supportive. Um, as I said, as you said initially, the book was actually launched was published in 2019 and the initial launch had to be cancelled because I it was found I had cancer. So <clears throat> I had three days to go before the flight to Cardiff to launch it in Wales and then I was going on to a big biostimulants conference I had turning feral pigs into fertiliser in um, Barcelona. So we had to cancel all that and then we redid, we rejigged everything and we did another launch here in Australia in November. Um, which is it's on my website if people want to have a look at that belatedly. But Acres Magazine were part of that. I mean, they they printed specific copies of the book for the launch in Wales in very short notice. They used an Australian printer to pr- print the book here. It was printed in Melbourne. Right. Um, yeah, so they've been phenomenally cooperative, and they're a good organisation in any case. Awesome. Perfect. Well, yeah, I will definitely be promoting your book. In fact, actually, I forgot to read something to you, uh, the local Mornington Peninsula Shire has changed their their waste rules and they're now going to start issuing fines if there's contaminants in the recycling. And um, I uh, I sent in uh, and like a letter to the editor to the um, Southern Peninsula News uh, paper and at the end of that letter there was a like a kind of three things that, that, that people could do instead of just issuing fines and one of them was they should buy your book. So oh, good. thank you. Yeah, so I'm trying to I'm trying to promote it as much as possible because it's really a great read and it's got information that would be very difficult to find anywhere else. Uh, you know, you wouldn't even know where to begin to Google to find a lot of these things. So um, yeah, really good job with the book. I um, yeah, I dig it. It's a great book. Thanks, Ryan. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so thanks again for having this conversation with me, Jerry. It was very interesting. Um, you covered a lot of ground, a lot of things that I didn't know to ask. Um, so, yeah, thank you for your time. It was a pleasure. Um, and people can also find all of that information, as you probably did too, at my website, jerrygillespie.net, which is really simple. And by all means, contact me. I'm constantly talking to people from the other side of the world that, it's always delightful to get, and there's no cost to anything I do as well. Um, I try to keep it free, you know, set up the next set of shoulders that someone else can stand on. Oh, that's good. It's very important. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, thanks for that. Thanks, Ryan. Nice to talk to you.